You're listening to a podcast from 702. Money that goes south on uh, really silly stuff. Um, it, it's a bewildering thing. I'll try and get some clarity from Professor Alex Funden here for from Vits, who always keeps a very tight eye on these things. Discam Brain of 702, you sent us your winner. Yes. We are going to test your winner in two more rounds. <laughs> we'll see listening. how that goes. I always enjoy that. And, of course, sh- you know, just reaching out to all our listeners, do come out and, and, and join in that because it's incredible fun. It's great listening and it's fun to participate in. And then I guess back to the more serious stuff, lots of teachers are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because of the pandemic. Working conditions are hard, but many of them are losing colleagues and friends and the Teachers Union Aptosa has raised the alarm on that, and we're going to find out what they think could or should be done. That's coming up at about 20 past three. Wonderful. We'll be listening. Thank you so much. That's John Pullman between three and six. 702. The Naked Scientist. 19 minutes to uh, three o'clock. Good afternoon, Chris. Asa, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. As you can hear, we're excited because the vaccines are finally coming um, and they land in a matter, well, within the hour, within the hour. Also, I don't want to put my neck on the line, but they did say just after three o'clock uh, from India. And, uh, and are radio presenters at the top of the priority list? No, we're not that sort of essential worker. <laughs> Well, I mean, it does do an essential job, though, doesn't it? Broadcasting and and keeping people informed. We're we're recognising the importance of good quality information, especially good quality scientific and medical information at at, at times like this, because this is how misinformation, unfortunately, can dominate if there isn't a steady supply of of good quality reporting and things like that. So it is is absolutely critical. But I know we're, we're celebrating reaching nearly 10 million people here in the UK who've actually got the vaccine so far, which is an outstanding achievement when you think uh, that, you know, that's one person in perhaps seven now by the end of this week walking around in the country, uh, 85 to to 100 percent of people over the age of 85 are now being protected. So this is an amazing achievement given it's gone from a standstill to this so quickly. It's been a real feat of organisation. They've done an amazing job. Yeah, and you, I'm you delighted five... to hear that uh, you know South Africa is going to find itself in the same position very soon. Yeah, it was five million last week and it's doubled since we spoke. Yeah. Well, Saturday they got to 550,000 people, which <sighs> that it's just astonishing how fast they're doing this. Uh, and they need to, of course, because the thing that's really got everyone worried is that all the time you've got people who are infected and, you know, make no bones about it. In this country right now, we think there's about a million people who have currently got coronavirus infection or are incubating it or suffering from it right now. Mm-hmm. And that translates into about one person in every 50. I mean, it's a huge, huge burden of disease in the country. And when you've got that level of disease spread, there's a really high likelihood that you're going to see more variants emerging, you're going to see more viral resistance emerging, and we need to suppress this down as fast as we possibly can. So coupled with public health manoeuvres like having the country in lockdown, that will help, but ultimately it's going to come down to vaccines to protect the most vulnerable, and, and that's going to be a really critical step. Of course, the other big piece of news to come out of South Africa on the vaccine front was Novavax's announcement last Thursday uh, evening when they announced the results of their phase three trial of their vaccine on 15,000 people in the UK. They also circulated data on a phase two trial from South Africa. And it was kind of good news and bad news because the good news was against the existing strain of coronavirus and the British new variant of coronavirus, their vaccine was 90% effective. 
unfortunately, against the South African new variant strain from the Eastern Cape, it seemed that it was about 50% effective. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that was down to the fact that a lot of the trial participants were also HIV positive, and it might be that that slows down the rate at which people build an immune response from a vaccine. But even if you remove those individuals from the assessment and, and when you're doing the calculations, it, it's still showing that it, it's not quite as effective against the uh, the variant that was circulating in the country when they were doing those those assessments. So that's a bit of a worry in terms of making sure we can keep pace with how the virus changes, which is why we all need to get as many people vaccinated as possible and drive the mm. growth of the virus down so we minimise the chance of more of these variants emerging. Mm. Wow, Chris. Um, it's a lot to contend with. And we've got a couple of questions pertaining to the vaccine and COVID-19. So this theme doesn't stop here. Let's start with you, Joe. You're in Kilani and you've got a question about COVID and the vaccine. Uh, yes, sir, Azania. I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Smith, a person who is immune compromised because he's on corticosteroid therapy may be predisposed to the virus. Will the vaccine be of protective value in such a person who will he be able to mount a good antibody response? Right. Thanks, Joe. Hi, Joe. Uh, the answer is that we're saying to people, because the vaccines are not live vaccines, they are either an RNA, a genetic vaccine like Pfizer's vaccine, or they are a defective empty virus that's just got genetic code in it for the coat of coronavirus like the AstraZeneca vaccine. These cannot make a person who has a, a suboptimal immune system ill, uh, yet they might well provoke a strong immune response in them ultimately anyway. So we're saying to people, you should definitely have the vaccine. But what you can't rely on if you do have an immune disabling disorder, whether that's a person on steroids, a person who's on immune suppressants for, say, an organ transplant, a person who's had a bone marrow transplant, a person with HIV, what we can't say is that those people will make a response as quickly, as effectively, or make as persistent a response as someone who doesn't have those problems. But because we know that vaccines like the flu vaccine do work quite well, they do save lives in people with those issues, then everyone should get the vaccine. It's not going to put that person's health in jeopardy unless they have some kind of uh, very rare reaction to what's in the vaccine. But it's likely they will nevertheless, albeit slightly more slowly, build an immune response. And that immune response will almost certainly help them to fight off the virus if they encounter it for real. So we're arguing people should go ahead and have the vaccine um, regardless of their prior immune status. Mm, Joe, thanks for that question. An anonymous in Johannesburg also WhatsApp us saying, I'm an HIV patient. What has been the impact on COVID, uh, of COVID on uh, HIV patients? One nurse told me that HIV patients are less impacted by COVID. Is this true? And if so, why? In your response, you touched on uh, um, HIV uh, uh, patients. So does that also, does that response also apply to his question? Well, we know that HIV leads to the loss from the body of a certain class of white blood cell that are essential in orchestrating an immune response. But what we also know is that well-controlled HIV managed with antiretroviral drugs leads to a person being regarded as essentially healthy in all respects. And therefore, it's when one must be cautious when we say a person with HIV, because it's a person with HIV who's well-controlled there's no problem with them. They will almost certainly make a good response to the vaccine. They will be protected. They'll be fine. Also, if they encounter coronavirus, really, if it's well-controlled HIV they've got, their risk is not going to be much different than someone who's um, the same age as them with the same risk factors. Where it might become more difficult to predict is people who have 
poorly controlled HIV or undiagnosed HIV, because in those people, they may well have underlying immune deficiency, which might mean they're more vulnerable to a range of infections, including the new coronavirus. We don't know yet exactly what the uh, interaction, because we haven't got enough numbers to know for sure what the interaction of HIV with coronavirus is, but that is being studied. We will learn. And some people have also suggested that actually, if you look across the African continent, we're seeing far fewer casualties from coronavirus than we had anticipated that we might. And one suggestion is that uh, partly it might be some kind of interaction with perhaps people with TB um, and people with HIV might have TB and TB might have some kind of immune modulating function that in some way changes the way the body responds to coronavirus because we found an association between people who have vaccination against TB and not getting severe coronavirus infection. We don't know why yet. We're still looking into it. It might also be, unfortunately, that because countries that have become very, very badly hit in the past by HIV, the population is artificially much younger in average age than in countries that didn't have the high impact of HIV. And therefore, actually, we're not comparing apples with apples because we've got younger people catching it. So they're actually doing much better. But at the moment, it's under study. I guess we're going to find out quite soon what the interactions are. Thank you, Chris. Prince, in Bedford View, you have a question about dogs. Yes, yes. If I was, can you hear me properly? Because my line earlier wasn't clear. Oh, we can hear um, you. Yeah. Um, I just want to find out, um, is it true that dogs, or, or I don't know, do dogs dream? Um, if they do, because I just found myself newly falling in love with dogs because I moved into a place that had dogs. And the way they act, they the very, very strange, well, not strange behavior, they are behaviors I didn't expect dogs have. You know, like a lot of human uh, things that they do that are very human beings. So I'm wondering, in, the, in that same vein, do they dream? If they dream, what perhaps could they be dreaming about? <laughs> and and <laughs> so who, who has been able to find that out? How do we know that? Okay. And also, why do, they, why do they sing? Why do they only sing black and white? Okay. Uh, Hi, Prince, Prince. Thank Well, you let, so let's much. deal with the myth first. Yeah. Dogs don't see in black and white. Dogs do see in colour. But they don't see the same range of colours that humans and primates do. We have in our retina, in the back of our eye, three colour detecting cone cells. We can see greens and reds and blues, whereas dogs are what are called dichromats. They don't have three different colour selective cones, they only have two. So this means that some colours that we could tell apart look the same colour to a dog. They can still see colour though but they just haven't evolved to have that additional colour detector. So their resolution of colour detection is, is less developed than ours, mm. but they definitely see in colour. Now, in terms of dreaming, yes, dogs definitely do dream. Many animals dream. How do we know that? A range of things. One of them is that you can actually measure the brain activity of a dog when it goes to sleep, and they have brain waves just like we do, and they have the same patterns of sleep that we do, and they also have the same patterns of dreaming. So if you look at what happens in a human brain when we dream, you can see the same changes unfolding in a dog's brain. Similarly, if you watch a dog when it's sleeping, you'll see it go through cycles where it mm-hmm. might start to vocalize and make yipping and yapping <laughs> noises. Dogs can sometimes move a little bit, run around a little bit, yeah. and th- they seem to be dreaming. Then the final thing is that people have done this, not in dogs, but in cats actually, There's a region in the brain stem, which is the top of the spinal cord, where the spinal cord connects into the brain proper. In this region called the subcerulea region, there are cells that turn on and become active when 
an animal, including a human, dreams. And the role of these cells is actually to stop the flow of information from the brain down into the spinal cord so you don't move around and sleepwalk. It paralyzes you when you go to sleep. If you deactivate that region, when these cats went to sleep, the cats would start stalking imaginary prey and prancing around as though they were acting out their dreams. Now, that's indirect evidence, but putting all this together, we think because we're closely related, we're both mammals, to dogs and cats, because the brain activity appears to be so strikingly similar when we dream and when they appear to be sleeping and dreaming, and because of this observation that if you deactivate this paralysis centre, that they'll start stalking imaginary prey, it's reasonable to presume that they probably experience dreams in the same way that we do. Yes, I watched my little star when she's sleeping and I can tell she's dreaming. As you say, there's that little kick of the leg from time to time. It's just something, you know, the breathing that suggests that she's watching her own movie in her sleep. Uh, <laughs> let's go to the lines again. Uh, we've got Andrew in Haman's Kral. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Alan. Uh, Dr. Chris, my first call this year. Wonderful. Welcome, Andrew. Dr. Chris, um, what is the um, difference between a uh, nebula and a uh, constellation? A nebula and a constellation. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. The, the answer is in, in a nebula, when the, where the word comes from is that the early astronomers looked up into the sky and they saw stars. And then they saw smudges of stars. And they couldn't quite work out what these nebulous masses of light were. So they called them nebulae. What we now understand is that they're actually galaxies and they, they are clusters of stars and galaxies are clusters of stars. So they realize that, in fact, ours isn't the only galaxy. There are other galaxies out there in, in the night sky. So a nebula is basically a cluster of stars. Right. Um, thank you for that. Next, we've got Bob in Lanasia. Bob, you also want to talk about the vaccine. Go ahead. Yes. I have a question for the doctor. Mm. How safe is it for an elderly person was suffering from chest congestion and also on methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis to take the vaccine. Okay. Hi, Bob. Methotrexate suppresses the immune system and, and that's actually how it achieves its therapeutic effect against rheumatoid arthritis because rheumatoid arthritis is your immune system attacking the joints. Therefore, a person who is in that situation of being both older in years but also on a drug that suppresses the immune system is at higher risk if they catch coronavirus of becoming more severely unwell. The vaccines are not live agents. In other words, they're not like the chickenpox vaccine or the MMR vaccine where you're using a weakened form of a live virus. They are completely inactive and they cannot infect you with the virus. They merely show your immune system what parts of the virus would look like were it to infect you for real. For this reason, we do not think that there's a contraindication through having uh, immunosuppressive drugs or being older to having any of the vaccines that have currently been licensed for use. Um, and those include Pfizer's vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, Moderna's vaccine, and, and we hope also soon um, the Novavax vaccine. Right. Uh, Mongezi, you also have a question about the vaccine. So much curiosity today. Hi, Mongezi. Hi, sorry. No problem. Yes, um, hi. Good afternoon, guys. I just want to check one thing on on the on the on the vaccine because of the range of efficacy ranging between sixty five and ninety five. If a patient gets the one that has got ninety five percent efficacy initially, and the second one, 
that he has to get, because there is no stock of the first one, he gets the 65% efficacy. What's going to be the likely outcome? Or is that doable? Okay. Uh, this is definitely question of the week. It's a brilliant question and it's really, really pertinent at the moment because scientists are looking at this very issue right now. In fact, a paper came out just last week. Uh, it's in pre, pre-press at the moment. So in other words, they, they put it out on a pre-publication server so people can look at it, but it's currently being considered by a journal. And they've asked this very question. And the conclusion that they reach is that in fact, doing this it's called heterologous vaccination, where you give one dose of one kind of vaccine and then you follow up with a booster of a totally different type of vaccine does appear to actually lead to even better immunity than if you had two doses of the same vaccine. There are a range of reasons why that probably happens, but it's very reassuring, both by the fact that we may therefore be able to push up the effectiveness of these vaccines altogether anyway, and B, if there is some kind of supply issue, which inevitably there always can be because of batch problems or delivery problems or availability and so on, it may actually be even better for us to mix and match. So in other words, things are only going to get better if we do this, not worse. Thank you, Mongezi. Question of the week is what concludes our session this afternoon. Thank you for that. Chris, uh, we'll keep you posted on our road to vaccination. Uh, It's going to take about two weeks, they say, before uh, the process starts. But knowing that it's in the country, I think definitely is going to give a lot of hope. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to hearing how you're getting on next week. Fantastic. That is our Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith.